Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thank God for David Attenborough with Ben Elwood. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Thank God for David Attenborough. My name is Ben Elwood, and my guest today is the truly excellent Professor Cullum Brown. Cullum is a behavioral ecologist who heads the Macquarie University's Fish Lab, and we had an awesome chat about sharks, the nature of consciousness, and the state of the environment as we sat down together to watch episode five of David Attenborough's Life on Earth, Conquest of the Waters. I'm on the edge of a coral reef at low tide. A few feet out there, the bottom sinks dramatically, and there you'll find an abundance of life of all kinds. Microscopic plants, invertebrates, corals, and of course, a multitude of fish. I was absolutely inspired by David as a kid. Yeah. Totally. To get into the field that you're in. Or just, just generally. Just life, yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I had a natural empathy, as most kids do, of, of wildlife. Mm. But he was my window yeah. into understanding it yeah. when I never had that. Yeah. You know, my, my dad was a salesman. My mom was a librarian. Yeah. So they never had any real education to speak of. Yeah. Neither of them finished high school even. Right. And so I had to learn all this stuff, you know, from my, from my own, off my own bat. Yeah. But watching these kind of documentaries. Yeah. Uh, it was just awesome for me. And I think to have somebody talk you through it, as he does, yeah. so that you see it in a way that you would not otherwise understand, yeah. that's so important. Mm. Um, and look, I used to do that as a marine educator. I used to work for the Australian Institute of Marine Science, taking kids out into rock pool rambles and swimming with the seals. Yeah. Some of these kids, they came out you know, from Western Victoria or whatever, they'd never seen the sea before. To see the joy in their eyes and the wonder and the excitement, yeah. it's so awesome. But that's the kind of feeling that I get, and I, I'm reliving it a little bit. <laughs> that's um, good, right? <laughs> yeah, although I don't learn anything. I mean, that's that's the problem, but, but I'm still inspired. My name's Cullen Brown, and I'm professor at Macquarie University, where I'm head of the fish lab, and I have been in love with fish since I was a little kid. Am I to uh, understand you're all into fish consciousness? I am. Yeah, what's that's that's great. How did you how did you get into that? <laughs> well, accidentally, really. 
my dad lived in Southeast Asia. So I used to fly back and forth from Australia to wherever he happened to be, which meant I spent a lot of time underwater and not at school. Awesome. Which actually, in hindsight, was a good thing. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time watching fish do cool things in pristine reefs. So my expectation of what fishes were capable of because of that face-to-face real-life experience Mm. was so different to everybody else's. Mm. So I, ever since I was about four or five, I wanted to be a marine, marine biologist and, you know, live in a caravan by the sea and yep. drive a Porsche. <laughs> Most of that didn't come true. Uh, especially the Porsche. Especially the Porsche. <laughs> Porsche and three kids, that just doesn't work. <laughs> Unless you've got a caravan towing them behind the Porsche. But <laughs> which, is the a, kids. which kind of cancels out the look of the Porsche, right? <laughs> Exactly. So that's where I came from as a kid. And then when I you know, actually started studying, I was doing marine biology at Melbourne Uni. My very first study was looking at learning and memory in fishes. How long can they remember stuff? How quickly do they learn stuff? And that sort of thing. And Ever since then, I've basically been studying consciousness, learning and memory, cognition in fishes in various different guises. So that's something you identify, because I think the general consensus is that fish are, you know, whatever, little wind-up robots or something and have no real inner life. Yeah, automatums, yeah. I remember as a little kid going fishing with a friend's dad and him telling me me that God had designed fish so well that he hadn't put pain receptors in their lips. Beautiful. Have you heard that one before? No, but it's a good one. (laughs) It's like this great moral justification for wrenching this thing out of, you know. And even at that age, I remember thinking, that's horseshit, that's ridiculous. And lo and behold, in about 2000, Lynn Snedden, who was a colleague of mine at University of Edinburgh, guess where she discovered pain receptors in fish? In the lips. In their lips. (laughs) The very first time they were described. I think Blue Planet was the first thing I ever saw that kind of really opened my eyes to, I think they were showing a fish using pebbles to crack open clams. Yeah, tusk fish. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's based on our work. Really? Yeah, so we described that. I think at the time it was semi-miraculous because a mate of mine was diving up on the Great Barrier Reef and he was flat out of air. His camera was just about out of batteries. Yeah. And he just surfaced, but he was under enough that he could still hear what was going on in the water. And he could hear this tap, 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 tap. Yeah. He was looking around everywhere. And then he saw the, the tusk fish bashing the crap out of this clam yeah. on a rock. And he managed to go down and reel off a couple of shots. And we wrote a paper about that. And no sooner had that thing been published and we had calls from people all over the world saying, wow, I've seen mm. our tusk fish on a reef somewhere in the world doing exactly the same thing. Wow. So now it turns out to be a really widespread thing. And that's considered tool, tool, tool use. using, yeah, yeah. which is a huge sign of cognition. Well, theoretically, because you're, you're trying to achieve something that you can't personally achieve yourself because your right. body's incapable of doing it. So you look for an alternative solution, which in this case is to grab a tool and use it, Yeah, which is pretty, it's pretty smart. Tool use is one of those many things that not long ago we used to think was unique to humans. Mm. And of course, then we found that a bunch of chimpanzees were doing it and a bunch of corvids, you know, parrots as well. Yeah. So crows and various parrots and things. And yeah. people were thinking, oh, well, that makes sense. They're all pretty smart animals. And then they found dolphins using sponges and various other things and then fish. Now everybody's like, wait a minute. Probably tool use is pretty widespread amongst most animals in some way, shape or form. Not yeah. as unique as we thought it was. Yeah, which which I guess denotes a level of consciousness or intelligence that yep. uh, yeah. <laughs> that we don't want to pay attention to. Yeah. Especially if you're killing like a you know, three trillion of them every year in nets and stuff in commercial fishing. Well it's almost essential, right? 
Because, you know, like unless you're a, you know, I, I don't eat meat, but I, I don't judge people that do. But you see that cognitive dissonance that people have to have. Unless you're a psychopath, you have to feel yeah, a little bit absolutely. of guilt about it. Yeah. You know, I mean. And at some point I think during our childhood, having three kids, I've seen this happen, the kids love, instinctively love animals yeah. and have empathy for animals. Yeah. But then you, they've got one on their plate. And that's a very difficult thing for their minds to grasp. Yes. And I think the only way you can cope with that is to literally split it in two. You know, this is food and these this is friends. Yeah, 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 yeah. And especially the way we, you know, I mean, most people, the, the only fish I ever ate as a kid was fish fingers. So it's like it's, it's, <laughs> it's just... Not real fish. Anyway. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't even look like the thing that it is. Yeah. Um, and then recently, after 10 years, I uh, was in it. I did a stupid survival course a couple of... Actually, it wasn't stupid. It was great. A couple of months ago. It was a very white suburban thing to do, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, they presented a chook uh-huh. for killing and eating at the end of the thing mm-hmm. and we hadn't eaten for a couple of nights and I had this real moral dilemma of I haven't eaten meat for a long time and I was always under the thesis of it's not that I disagree with meat eating but I disagree with the industrialized meat industry yep. and the separation from yep. uh and so in the end I did the deed mm-hmm. you know as a way of whatever absolving my own guilt but that's of, good right I mean yeah. you owned up to it yeah and yeah. it really it concretized unless I'm in that position again. I will never. Yeah. T- I mean, it had been ten years, but I would never touch meat yeah, again. Yeah. The 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 difference between having to look that thing in the eye mm-hmm. and do it, yeah. and the disassociative shock that happened, like it was good, a good two hours of me just out of my body, like yeah, yeah. you know, really, really messed up. Yeah. You know, and there's a part of your brain going, "It's just a stupid chicken," yeah. but another part going, "Well, no, it's everything that's ever been exactly. alive and doesn't want to die." Yeah. And, and I had pet chickens as a kid. Yeah, right. So <laughs> you know, yeah. we my grandma. I used to have this one that used to come and sit on your lap and watch TV with you. Yeah. (laughs) That's the thing. You hang out with any animal for long enough and you realise there's a personality there, you know. Do you eat fish? Well, mostly I can't afford to because it's ridiculously (laughs) expensive and it ought to be. Yeah. Occasionally I get some salmon and have it as sashimi, but it's salmon from an aquaculture farm that's, you know, working on their RSPCA tick of approval. Yeah, right. About as good as you can be. Yeah. But it won't be long before aquaculture in, well, at least in Europe, but hopefully in Australia eventually, will bring in these sorts of, you know, welfare best practices for for slaughter. Mm. They don't at the moment, not in Australia anyway, Mm. Um, but it won't be long before we, you know, basically render them unconscious before we kill them, which is the best, best way to do it. We do it for all terrestrial animals. We just currently don't do it for fishes. And is that is that just a byproduct of thinking that they're not as sophisticated yeah, as mammals? Basically, yeah, just yeah, a way right. of us ignoring reality. Do you think it's because fish are so other to us? I think so. Alien? Yeah, and they, look, they they occupy a, a world that we're completely unfamiliar mm. with. And I think if more people spent more time snorkeling and diving. Mm. Uh, their attitude would be completely different. I mean, you find that just hanging out in the rock pool. Kids love that, right? Yeah, they get totally engaged. But there is nothing better. Even if you put your scuba gear on and just sat in two metres of water for an hour or two, the things you would see in that time would blow your mind. And if you did that, you know, off the coast of Indonesia or West Papua or something like that, the diversity there is just mind-blowing. We were there over the last couple of years monitoring the behaviour of, of manta rays. Mm. We're supposed to be taking videos and, and f- video footage and, and snapshots and things. And several times I had to remind myself 
that I was supposed to be working because yeah. I, there was so much going on yeah. in the immediate area around me. You know, within 50, 60 centimetres of where I was sitting, yeah. you could have spent all day just watching <laughs> stuff That's happening great. in that space. Yeah. Uh, and so I think people need need to have that kind of experience because we're so disconnected from yeah. the underwater world. Yeah. And because we don't understand fish, we don't see them in, in that sort of natural environment. We mm have a total misconception of of their complexity and just frankly how awesome they are (laughs) some of them are beautiful some of them are terrifying fair enough some of them are downright ugly but the diversity you can say the same with people right (laughs) (laughs) definitely the bony fish have excellent colour vision and so they're able to signal to one another with stripes and spots and blotches and in the most wonderful variety of colours so is that, would that be true to say that the majority of very colourful fish are reef fish? Yes. So we're trichromatic. Most bony fishes are tetrachromatic, so their capacity to differentiate between colours is so much better than ours. But once you go down, you know, 10, 20, 30 metres, yeah. colour becomes irrelevant. Yeah. And if you go down deep enough, then vision becomes irrelevant. Then, you, of course, you have the rest of the 12,000 metres of depth <laughs> to, to worry about. <laughs> Which I, I guess that tracks, you know, as you go down, fish start to get translucent. Yeah. And then further, further down, they don't even have eyes a lot of the time. Yeah, a lot of the time they don't. And they're using, you know, chemical cues and vibrations and other senses, yeah. you know, magnetic, electric, all those sorts of things. Wow. We, because we're, we like to think we're visual as humans. Actually, we're not very good at vision either. We're not really good at anything. Um, we're good at wrecking the place. We're good at wrecking the place. Tick. <laughs> Virus tick. Yeah. What we don't realise is that, you know, well, probably blind people realise that vision isn't the only thing, right? Your other your other senses can take over. Yeah, I, I heard a thing about a um, guy who was, he uses his clicker and it's basically, he talks about it being like bat yeah. echolocation. echolocation. Mm-hmm. He's got a whole kind of spectrum in his head of, yeah. you know, just the sound bouncing yeah, around. it's amazing. It's incredible. Ray Charles used to do that. Mm-hmm. They asked him how he walked through New York without a cane, and he said he'd always just walk a few steps behind a group of pretty women because no car would ever run over a group of pretty women. <laughs> how did he know they were pretty? Yeah, well. <laughs> Maybe they sounded pretty. Yeah. If one wanted to pick out of the 30,000 or so species of fish alive today, the king of them all, my vote would go to this, the salmon. The salmon's sense of smell is almost unbelievably acute. This river is not just any river, it is the precise one in which all these fish were hatched. Each has retained a memory of the taste and smell of these waters. And this has drawn them back across thousands of miles of ocean so that they may complete their lives where they began them. I was once cycle touring in Alaska yeah. and I stopped at this bridge and I was watching some guys fly fishing and trying to catch the salmon during the, their yeah. breeding run. Yeah. And lo and behold, this whopping great bear just wanders out of the forest <laughs> and it just stands there next to the fisherman. It's mouth open. No, it's just standing there next to the fisherman. And it's sitting there and it's waiting and it's waiting and inevitably the fisherman catches something and the bear just wanders off and says, thanks very much, pulls it off the end of the line, puts it in its mouth and goes back into the forest. <laughs> you got to pay tribute. So they return to the lake they were born to they, spawn they born, and then they, they die. They, they return to exactly the same position in the river that they were born in 
when they're initially born, they form a special template, like a special memory of the chemical signature of that particular stretch of river. How they are managed to detect it in the open ocean is like mind-boggling. The dilution factor must be like one in a gazillion, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet they still manage to migrate back. They find this, the the uh, the mouth of the river and then they migrate up the river to exactly the right spot. And so we, science still doesn't really understand how it happens, just that it happens. It's a bit like, um, you know, when a chicken is born and it sees its mother and it it, it imprints and yeah. fix, on, fix on the image of its mother yeah. or a Coke can or you yeah. or whatever yeah. it sees first. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing, except instead of being a visual imprinting, it's a chemical imprinting. Right. And then they have this, I guess it's like a template in their mind and they're constantly sampling the chemical signatures of the water mm. against the template to mm. see how it matches. Right. And as it gets, as you can imagine if they're moving in, you know, 180 degrees, they find the one that clo- matches most closely to the template and they move in that direction for a bit. And then they move around again and they find the one that motes as And eventually, of course, they can match the template. Exactly. When, when you explain it like that, it does make sense. Like, you know, obviously I can't project my head into the mind of a salmon. But when you, you, you know, when you use the analogy of visual signals, mm-hmm. like I'm thinking of myself lost in the bush or whatever, and so mm-hmm. oh, I recognize that tree. Yeah. So I'll just head towards that tree. Mm-hmm. And then we'll figure it out from there. Similar kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's hard for us to imagine using your sense of smell to navigate, but maybe you find trying to find the gym locker rooms or something and you follow the stink. Yeah, or avoid the bad cubicle. Yeah, exactly. Is it logical to think that we could get to a stage where we know enough about animal consciousness in a wider sense throughout the population that fundamentally we could change our approach to them? I think we're there already. It's just a question of whether people are willing to take it on board or not. And I think uh, we've got a long way to go as a society. We're still using animals in so many different ways. Mm. I think we're getting there, but it's way slower than it ought to be. And it's partly because of that, you know, people can split their brain and they can love animals on the one hand and then eat them on the other or use them in experiments or, you know test out some new eyeliner or whatever. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There is an inbuilt hostility that we have to yeah. animals. Yeah. It makes sense. I think it did. It was literally survival. Well, yeah. That's not – the tables are fully turned now. Now nature is in deep yogurt and <laughs> we could just about do anything we want at any point and annihilate anything. Mm. So – So is there is – there... What? <laughs> <laughs> Well, because I go off on my flights of fancy all uh-huh. the time and it, it's really like there's about half the year I get lost in a real hole <laughs> with climate change and yeah, all the rest. Yeah, yeah. Is there like w- w- from your perspective, what's, 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 the, what's, what's the deal? Is there, any, is there any hope to cling on to? Not really. Not mm. the way we're going. No. I don't know when it became political, right? In other countries around the world, the conservatives are leading the climate push, right? Yeah. And you look, look at the UK, for example, super conservative government and everything they do is pro-climate. Yeah. So it's hard to know why we're going down this road, but let's say let's mm. say we get net zero by twenty fifty. Mm. It's too late. Yeah. We've already gone past the tipping point. So yeah. it's gonna be climate catastrophe all over the place. I'm not all that concerned about the resilience of the world. What I am concerned about is billions of people yeah. being displaced from coastal communities. Yeah. And the shit that that's gonna bring down on us all. Yeah. And do you uh, that's the thing. I think people can't th- – it's hard to pr- project yourself into the future and 
for the most part, even as an individual. But the yeah. insurance companies are doing it now already, yeah. so that you know they won't insure certain places. You know, right. look at all those places out western Sydney, right? That that used to be a one one in a hundred year floodplain. You shouldn't be building on that anyway, but yeah. they did. Yeah. But one in a hundred year floods they happen every twenty or thirty years now. And, and what insurance gonna, companies are just they won't it. they just won't insure. I look at the individual and it's like, man, the majority of people can't give up smoking until they get some kind of terrible health scare. Yep. and it just feels like a country needs to go underwater before everyone goes. I think that's oh, it. Shit. Yeah, but I mean, by then it's too late, right? You're right, mm. and the projections are obvious. I mean, the, the a couple of centimeters of sea rise mm. every year or two mm. that doesn't sound much, but when you do that by ten years, twenty years, and then you add on top of that storm surges and or you know. Big waves, or mm. Mm, let's say a super moon, or something that you know brings the tides up, and you combine all those things. Mm. So that means the coastal fringe is screwed. Yeah. Let alone the the thing people can understand inundation. Yeah. Because uh, you know a mean increase in sea rise is kind of comprehensible, even yeah. though we're ignoring that. But that's not the problem. The problem is the surges and the super tides on top of that. Yeah. 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 Is there any way of convincing people that this stuff is more important than just kind of a side issue that can be voted uh, on once every four man, years? Uh, frankly, I think if the government doesn't lead, and I can't see them doing it, yeah. not the Conservatives anyway, mm. and in fact Labor's looking more and more like Conservatives, yeah. the only way I can see it happening is literally by businesses taking the lead. It seems like it has to, right? They will. Yeah, business, yeah, yeah. Big business will take the lead, yeah. and they're already doing that. Yeah. So a lot of businesses have already you know, committed to... Well, all the state governments are committed to zero net greenhouse output, but most of the big businesses are doing that too. Even the bloody petrol companies and the mining companies are doing it, and oh, the government still doesn't do it. But now it's politically woke to do it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I saw an ad on the back of a bus yeah, the other day. It's like, oh, because we care about the climate, yeah, we're yeah. making all of our credit cards out of plants now. Like, yeah. Oh, how dare you? But it is amazing, right? They're yeah. actually thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I know it's superficial and blase yeah. and it's all a facade, but yeah. at the end of the day... Yeah. That is a reflection of what society's thinking. They wouldn't be doing that if they didn't think there was, you know, kudos. Well, capitalism doesn't work if everyone's dead. No, you can't sell no, stuff to people no, if they're all drowning. Well. So no. it, seems, it seems logical. Yeah. The only thing that brings me solace in any of this is that kind of thinking in deep time mm-hmm. in that yeah, sense exactly. of like, yeah, we'll get wiped out and yep. the earth will scab over and forget yep. that we were over here. and yep. Start again. It does bring me solace, but there's a huge existential dread that comes with it. And the more people I talk to that really know their business, I don't get much <laughs> positive stuff to hang on to. <laughs> no, that's why there are so many depressed biologists out there because yeah. we can see this happening. How do you deal with it? Well, we all get around and have a few beers and laugh about it because what else can you do? Is that what it is? Just like gallows humor? Yeah, and, you know? yeah. What else can you do? There's, I mean, there's literally nothing. Mm. We've been talking to everybody till we're blue in the face. Nobody's listening. The government... Well, let's say the government likes science when it suits its agenda, but it, the rest of the time it's allergic to science. No, it's the worst-case scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you could snap your fingers right now and change a thing or multiple things to make significant difference, like what, what are the main contributing factors to this nightmare? <laughs> to me, I mean, the fundamental problem is, is the way our government works or not. Yeah. I mean, they are so fixated on backhanders from coal and, and these sorts of big companies. Yeah. The politics of, the, of today is not about the people. It's mm. not about the future. It's about politicians staying in their jobs now and mm. making as much money as they possibly can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no long-term plan for anything. It's almost postmodern corruption now, where in the past they at least had the yeah, decency yeah. to hide behind exactly. policy, whereas now it's like... It's just blatant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut and burn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that, that's the, also the apathy of the people, right? I think people have got to a point where they're just so harrowed they're by this, it. like, whatever. Yeah. You know, how many cycles can you see yeah, of the same corruption? <laughs> and, and then I think the Trump, the whole Trump thing kind of just broke people's brains for a while. He was unreal. I mean, he just went Wasn't from crisis it? to crisis to crisis to crisis, and the media was so busy chasing it. Nobody ever had time to dwell on any one of those events. Because any one of those things, if it had been anybody else, yeah, they would have yeah. been out. But that, but that was that, that was by design. It was oh, just you know, like ten yeah. controversies a day. Yeah, and keep everybody on their toes. Did you get caught up in it all? I loved it. Yes, yeah, it was like a sitcom. <laughs> Me and Sean were the same. <laughs> yeah, I've never read so many newspapers in my oh, life. Oh my god, I had to get rid of the internet in my home because I couldn't. I just couldn't do it anymore. I was lunging for a phone first thing in the morning, half expecting to see a mushroom cloud. Yeah, like, what did he do? Yeah. I had the CNN app on my phone. Oh, wasn't it just? And then you realise it's this total colonisation of your mind. Yeah. And he's actually won. He's yeah. become this, like, entity that's changed yeah. all of reality. Absolutely. It felt like escaping Fritzl's basement when he was voted <laughs> <laughs> Jaws, armed with teeth, enabled the fish to become very effective food gatherers and so grow into large and powerful creatures. And some of them became monsters. Judging from the size of these gigantic teeth, the shark was about 45 feet long. It's extinct, but its relatives are very much alive. Is the misunderstanding of sharks, is that like a complete byproduct of Jaws or is that oh, always been the way? Oh, my God, Jaws has got so much to own up for. It really does, right? Yeah. Do you so, Spielberg feels any guilt? Yeah, well, there's, there's been multiple interviews with just about everybody who's involved with that film mm. and they all feel guilty about how that film has shaped multiple generations of people's perspective of sharks. It's going to take a long time before they come back from that. The, the PR damage back then is massive. Oh, it I was absolutely petrified of the ocean until I was about 25 years old. And <laughs> Pin Pinocchio had a lot to answer for with Monster of the Whale. Yeah. But it was predominantly Jaws. Yeah, yeah. I saw Jaws way too young at the Leichhardt swimming pool uh -huh. and there were teenagers diving under the water grabbing everyone's legs yeah. and it was just game over. Yeah, I think that, that effect is still with us today. Mm. It's changing a little bit, though. I mean, I noticed recently some of the um, city councils don't want shark nets along their beaches anymore. Of course, it's a, a state government decision about whether or not that happens. But I suspect that people are starting to have a bit of empathy for sharks um, rather than thinking of them as, you know, something that's out to get us and we've got to kill them all before they kill us. God, it's such a human-centric thing, right? This Unreal. idea that the animal is maliciously, <laughs> specifically targeting you. It's, it's, it's such a strange oh, mentality. It's unreal. And if nothing could be further from the truth. Sharks aren't really interested in people. Yeah. They occasionally bite us. Yes, but if they really were out to get us, you could not swim anywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. along the coast of Australia. Yeah. You would literally be eaten every time you got in the water. So, so that's the huge misunderstanding about massive. them, right? That they're yeah, not. They're, they're not. Every time, every now and then, they bite us. Yeah. And unfortunately, when a five-meter white shark bites somebody, you tend to bleed out. You know that that's how people die. They mm. don't get eaten. They get bitten, and then they bleed to death. Yeah. And um, so we really need to change our perspective on, or well, get a reality check. Yeah. You know. And what are the chances? At the moment, you know, you, the chances of dying from a shark bite is about the same as winning Tats Lotto, first division Tats Lotto twice in a row, right? <laughs> and no economist in their right mind is going to say, give up on this whole university crap. Just buy a lotto ticket, you'll be right. Because that's, that's, that's what is basically what the government is currently using as its management tool yeah. for, for sharks. Yeah. How many people die? On average, it's about 1.4 a year, right? Mm -hmm. 
How many people drown? 300 and something. More people are killed by bees yeah. or, or kangaroos or dogs or, dogs yeah. or horses. Yeah. And, you know, you don't see the government going out there and putting up horse nets. But then, but then what is it? Is it that sharks are... I guess, uh, kind of objectively scary. And so it's just easy to kind of make it this so. whole thing. Yeah, and I think the government wants to be seen to be doing something about that they, that's something they can't actually do anything about, right? Yeah. There's, there is a chance, a remote chance, that you're going to get bitten. And even if you do get bitten, it's about 1 in 25 yeah. that you're going to die. Yeah. Um, so we're such an absurd species. It's ridiculous. <laughs> we should be able to splash around in this ancient predator's biosphere as much as we want without any potential no, risk. No, yeah, it's right. It's like saying, you know what? Today I'm going to go and play tennis on the M4, and I demand <laughs> that the government looks after me. That's effectively what we're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's stupid, except you're much more likely to die on the M4. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, look, the whole concept is ridiculous. Mm. The probability of getting killed is next to nothing. Yeah. And yet the government spends gazillions of dollars every year <sighs> trying to mitigate against shark attack, which actually, is it worth it? If you sat down mm. and did a cold, hard, this is the facts, this is the risk matrix, you know, there'd be 500 things mm. that would come above sharks that you'd want to manage. Climate change. <laughs> well, no, you can't manage climate change. That'd be ridiculous. <laughs> That's like a whole climate thing. Surely humans can't impact climate. Um, but, yeah, you, sharks wouldn't be in the top 100. Yeah. You know? Do they still send those ridiculous posses out to go and kill? Remember that when they, I think it was the... They still do. They Queensland still do. and Western Australia. That is the do. most retrograde, absurd... It's like, it's you, you know, you see those old Westerns, or yeah. let's get a posse. Yeah, yeah. it's the really, Wild West. Really? Seriously, it is. They're not still hauling themselves out of the ocean and breaking into your home. It's nah. so absurd. No, nah, it's unreal. Why don't they like people, like the taste of humans? They're just not uh, evolved to eat people. They're evolved right, yeah. primarily to eat fish. Yeah. So if you crunch up a fish and, and wave it around in the water, they're going to go berserk. Yeah. They're quite keen on seals, which is not fat. surprising because they're full of fat, yeah, right? Yeah. So they bite a person. It's like, have you ever been to a Chinese restaurant and, and ordered chicken feet? <laughs> Same thing. It's just skin and bones, and it takes you an hour and a half to eat one. It's just not worth it, right? Same thing. Shark bites us like, oh, no way, and they spit us out. Like, they don't even get to eat soy sauce with us, right? I mean, it's just straight up horrid. So they spit us out. What they really want is high protein and high fat. Mm. So that's what they're going to get from seals. Yeah. Or they want all the protein that they get from a fish. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we've known for a really long time sharks are not remotely interested in eating us. Mm. We're still terrified. There needs to be, you know, you know how there's um, trigger warnings at the start of most movies now? There needs to be one for Jaws now. Yeah, absolutely. Like, this is an inaccurate representation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to need to be politically correct. <laughs> How did this astounding variety come about? What were the earliest fishes like whose descendants now exploit the resources of the seas, the lakes and the rivers in such a multitude of different ways? The answer may lie with one of the simplest organisms in the sea. How did fish originally pop up? Like, what, what did they evolve from? This funny-looking filter feeder things long before anything really had bone and brains. Mm -hmm. Not all that dissimilar from a, a lamprey larvae. It's a tiny, insignificant little blob of jelly. That little lump of yeah. jelly. Yeah. 
I mean, you can see why religious people freak out, right? <laughs> I'm not a sea squirt. <laughs> How dare you say that my great-great-great-great-grandfather was a lump of slime? The interesting thing is that about a month or two ago, mm. there were some new papers which blows that whole theory. So what, what are they saying it is now? Well, we don't know. Wow. There must have been something else. That seems to be the case in all biology, though, right? Like, yeah. the more you dig, the more you realise yeah, how it's not kind quite of... True. When, I was about, when I was about 35, I got it in my head for a red-hot minute that I was going to become a veterinary scientist. I was like, I'm going to go back to uni and study, <laughs> study anatomy. Sweet. I've got a, well, I had a general knowledge. Mm-hmm. And after about three months, we had our first exam, and I sat down after studying so hard, thinking I was so clever, opened the exam, literally burst out laughing because I didn't know the answer to anything. <laughs> <laughs> and just shut the book and left, left. it. And, you know, I'm still paying the extent off. End of story. But it was just the, the infinite complexity of it was just, I couldn't get my head around yeah. it. I thought I was clever because I remembered that, oh, the femur is in the leg. Yeah. It was like, no, 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 you've got you to know, like, yeah. down, 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 yeah. Inf- infinity in both directions. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. I mean, med science is complicated, but mm. vet science is way worse, yeah. right? Because there's such diversity out there yeah. amongst all the animals. <laughs> But imagine if you had to work as a as a fish doctor. You know, there's 36,000 different species of fishes. So there's no great uniformity between, could you say that? There the, are similarities, yeah. but there's massive diversity. Yeah. They occupy so many different, you know, 40-degree desert springs, little puddles in the middle of central Australia to the deep ocean trenches. And yeah. Fish living between the ice layers in Antarctica and stuff. Amazing. And you've got to assume when you go right down the bottom, it's a whole a universe. whole other world yeah. that we've hardly explored. Yeah. You know, the irony is that we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the bottom of the oceans. I was about to say, is that because it's so hard to get down there? But it's pretty hard to get to the moon as well. Well, so. yes, but the pressure is the problem. Right. So the vacuum is okay. We can kind of protect about the vacuum. Yeah. But what we can't do is build stuff that's tough enough to withstand the pressure, the positive pressure of the deep oceans. Right. And so there's only, you know, two or three people who have ever been to the bottom of the sea. James Cameron's one of them, isn't he? Yeah, it's in the deepest trenches. But now that it's been done, isn't it just like all technology where it's kind of you can just roll it out a lot easier now? We could. The trouble is... Radio de- waves don't work underwater, so you have to come up with a new way of right. talking to the boats at the surface. Most of them are tethered. So, it's, it, in fact, it's harder to explore the seas than it is the moon. Would you go down to the bottom? Uh, look, I'm not, I'm not a fan of you know, yeah. small spaces and <laughs> thinking that there's like a gazillion pounds of pressure uh, surrounding me. So someone gave you a free ticket, like, we're going to go down to the bottom. you got a free seat. Maybe. It wouldn't be like a, the biologist in you wouldn't be a little bit curious. Well, I, that's, that's the thing that would drive me. I feel like it would be more terrifying than going into space. Oh, absolutely. I really like it. Yeah, yeah. And I, and that's a, it's I a have weird no inc- problem going into space. Yeah. Send me into space, no problem. Well, if you've got a spare $32 million, you can go up with um, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> yeah, of course. What a horror, right? Imagine looking out that window and seeing Earth and like, oh, my God, we're all one, and then realizing Jeff Bezos is sitting next to you. <laughs> it kind of ruins it, doesn't it? <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Could you say generally that there is a way that fish perceive reality? Well, you know, this is one question I have. I have a lot of discussion with philosophers about what consciousness is, whether yeah. it's the same for all animals. My feeling is that it's like a multidimensional space that's largely, I guess, um, derived from the senses that you have available. Mm. So it's for a long time, you know, classic ethologists have, have thought that an animal's view of the world, the way it perceived the world, is very much shaped by the senses that it has. Mm. So your in, in your reality and my reality is very similar because we share mm. similar sorts of senses. We can perceive similar sorts of things. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there isn't more out there, right? Of course. So animals can detect things that we're incapable of detecting, you know, yeah. magnetic radiation yeah. from the Earth's fields, UV light. Yeah. They can detect polarised light, all sorts of stuff yeah. that we're incapable of detecting. So every animal, their view of the world mm. is completely dependent on, on the senses that it has available to them and, yeah. the, and the way they process that information and subsequently their, their consciousness, if you like, mm. is going to vary. So I, I think there's like a consciousness multiverse yes. where there's different versions of consciousness and reality indeed. And and luckily in some places we all overlap. Mm. So we can all sit down with a dog or a chicken and a bird and agree that, you know, this happens and this is this is how it works. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there's stacks of stuff and we shouldn't fool ourselves that we know everything about everything. Fortunately we can use technology to help us. Yeah. You know, think of night vision goggles and stuff like that. Yeah. There are animals that can see in the night. We need special goggles to, to be able to Augment see that. Our senses. Yeah. yeah. So there's there's a bunch of realities that just aren't open to us. Do you, do you think consciousness is inevitable? Like, no. You don't think so? No. I think it's my feeling is it's an emergent property of complex nervous systems. Yeah. So you have to have a really complex neural net in your brain or, or whatever mm. 
um, for that kind of self-awareness to happen. And there has to be a lot of feedback loops within the system, right? So it's one thing to be gathering information and, and dealing with it in the same way that kind of a robot does. You yeah. know, you can put a bunch of sensors on a robot and you say, well, when this happens, do this. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. But when you get interconnectedness within the system yeah. and feedback loops, you know, that you're updating information about yourself yeah. and what all of your sensors are doing, then I think that consciousness emerges from that, you know, crazy interconnectivity. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that for an animal that perceives reality completely differently from us, that it's even possible to conceive of what it is to be that animal? Like a, a catfish that is covered in taste buds and perceives yeah. the world yeah. predominantly through taste. Yeah. I mean... It's, it's difficult. You, I mean, you can kind of go there a little bit, but it, at, at some point you hit a wall with it because yeah, no, you're still imagining, exactly. like, oh, it's, is it like having a tongue all over your body? Yeah. yeah. There was a, an elephant-nosed um, fish, which is actually from the fresh waters of the Amazon. Mm. They basically don't use vision. They use electricity, which they generate themselves, mm. and they use electricity kind of like a sonar in the, in the way that a dolphin does. Wow. So they put out bursts of electricity into the environment and the environment reflects it and absorbs it, and then it comes back to them. And they can analyse the way that the, the magnetic field and the electronic field is, is varying. We can detect that because we can put special electrodes in the water and yeah. measure what's going on. Yeah. But if it was just you swimming around, you'd have no clue whatsoever that this whole other conversation is happening. Yeah. This whole way of, of living, um, of perceiving the world and navigating and, and communicating is happening because it's just something that you, you can't even begin to relate to. It's mind-blowing, right? Yeah. So say a tree or something gets attacked by caterpillars or whatever, it lets off a whole bunch of hormones and whatever else. It's communicating to yeah, other plants yeah, and yeah. they're responding. So if you told your average bloke that, you know, the trees plants are talking, are talking to, each to each other, they'd look at you like, okay, there's the key to the loony bin. We're throwing that away. But, I mean, people would have thought that about animals 100 years ago. Right, you yeah. know, There was that real Descartes, yeah. Descartes thing of, you yeah. know, they're just little biological yeah. models and yeah. when a dog screams in pain, it's not really in pain, it's just yeah. reacting. It's an automatic response. Yeah, totally. And, you know, there are still people to this day who believe that about fishes too. Mm. There's a group of um, anti-fish pain people who basically put forward that everything a fish does is automated. So it's all reflex. It's, there's nothing going on consciousness mm. in, in their consciousness or, or cognitively at all. It's, it's literally a robot with a predestined number of you know, responses to, to stimuli that come in. Of course, we, we've known that that's not the case for 50, yeah. 60, 70, probably 80 years. Yeah. Because we have this, I guess, understanding, belief that we're the biggest and the best at everything mm. and we're largely naive about the capabilities of most other animals. It seems like every year we find out something new. Those barriers get broken down and broken down and broken down. I, I doubt we were the first animals to experience joy or no, shame exactly. or whatever. Or anything. Or anything, really. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, everything that we have came from something before us. We're now at a point where we should assume that actually we're no different. We're to be, it's safer to assume that we're no different from other animals. Yeah. And we start to think about well, what are, what is unique about us. Yes. Because actually that list is getting smaller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely a speciesism involved in it. Oh, you know, we're the lords of consciousness. Yeah. And, yeah. No. yeah, well, I mean, uh, I, I can kind of understand where it comes from, right? Because you and I, we have so many similarities. Our genes are pretty bloody close. The way we see the world is pretty close. Our senses are pretty close. Probably our brains are pretty similar, the way we perceive things and, and analyse things. So it kind of makes sense that I have some idea of what's going on in your mind. Mm. But the further we get away from you and me and we move to even amongst animals mm. like, um, you know, dogs and cats, 
we think we have an idea of what's going on inside their minds and we like to project mm. ourselves onto them. Mm. And that's the biggest problem. You can't even understand what other people are thinking and feeling and things, let alone what another animal is thinking or feeling. Yeah. And the further you get away from humans, the worse it gets yeah. because your hunches are wrong. Uh, at least with you and me, I, 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 there's a pretty good chance that I understand what's going on. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you yeah. step on your foot, you, you know, bash your thumb with a hammer. I'm thinking, ah, yeah, okay, I've done that. Yeah. I know what that feels like. Yeah. But that may not be true. I mean, <laughs> I often talk about my, to my kids, you know, about stupid things like, why is that called green? And I was like, well, that's because I've been told that's green. And yeah. to me, it's green. But if you were to step into my brain momentarily, you might think that's red. Yeah. But you've been taught to say it's green yeah, yeah, yeah. because that's the that's your perceptual bias. So it's extremely difficult. And the, and the perception is fish live quite a, lead quite a cold, brutal life. Yeah, it's that lack of expression. Yeah, you know, yeah. And dogs go, go, come a long way in our hearts because they look like they're smiling all the time. <laughs> Whereas a animal, that's there's kind something of like about that. that. Yeah, I mean, the reason we have dogs around, in fact, they've evolved. And part of the domestication process, particularly with dogs, is that right. they have specifically evolved to relate to humans. Cuteness as well. Right? Yeah. Yeah. They know what to do. They can manipulate us because they know how we work. Yeah, which is kind of frightening. <laughs> Who's <laughs> like, the real master? Pets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'll have another serve of that. Yeah. <laughs> and fishes is one of those things. They're, they're so far removed. They're not terrestrial. They live in this other environment mm. where none of the rules apply. Mm. They don't talk in the way that, that we do. They don't make facial expressions in the way that we do. Mm. So it's the other mind's problem is a fundamental issue, particularly for animals that we can't relate to. The walking kingfish travels overland, but it's not the first fish to do that. One managed it some 350 million years ago, and that was a momentous move, because from that fish developed frogs, lizards, birds and mammals, and ultimately, ourselves. So what did you make of that? Did you like it? I loved it. It's great, right? As a flashback, I haven't seen it since I was a kid. And now I'm so uh, excited about it, I'm going to show it to my kids. Yeah, great. And it's it's really amazing because uh, fundamentally about the first half of my vertebrate evolution course in uni is covered by this, this film. There you go. Not a lot has changed. Yeah, amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah, Dave, I think David as an educator is uh, – I think he's so ubiquitous, but people almost take him for granted. Mm-hmm. I think going back to the earlier stuff, it's a real reminder yeah, of what amazing. a service he's given the yeah, world with yeah. his stuff. Yeah, easily one of my favourite people in the world. Oh, definitely. For me, it's like these shows, you know, I don't even know who I would be without them because, you know, talking back what we were saying before about empathy for other animals mm. and mm. it's really these shows that did it for me I, and, you know, my kind of backyard animal observations, but it's very restricted. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of lucky because as a kid I was growing up in all sorts of countries all over the world and mm. seeing wildlife for, for what it was, living in just outside of Manila in the Philippines. I remember walking around a golf course one day. My dad was playing golf with some rich people, I don't know, and there are monkeys in the trees, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just to see that and yeah. be exposed to that as a kid was awesome. Yeah. Um, but to have somebody like David Attenborough talking you through it yeah. and explaining the significance of everything yeah. and, and the interconnectedness, that was really eye-opening. And I was, I was always going to be a biologist of some sort. Mm. I love the ocean and the sea, so it was probably going to be a marine biologist. Mm -hmm. But to see these kind of films, 
I mean, who wouldn't want to be a marine biologist after that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's so cool that you got a job that allows you to hold on to that childlike wonder still. Yeah, yeah. You know? And look, that, I think I'm one of the luckiest people in the world. Yeah. Hey, man, thank you so much. That Pleasure. was great. Man, awesome. Good fun. Thanks once again to the brilliant Professor Cullum Brown for an awesome conversation. If you'd like to follow Cullum, he's on Twitter at Cullum Brown. That's at C-U-L-U-M-B-R-O-W-N. And as always, a big thank you to my partner in crime, Sean Allen, for making this one of the most beautiful sounding podcasts out there with his wonderful music and sound effects. If you are enjoying this podcast, please, please do what you can to get it into as many ears as possible. Leave a five-star rating, leave a review, share it on Twitter, whatever you got to do. Next week, my guest will be the awesome Dr. Jody Rowley. We'll be talking all things amphibians as we sit down together to watch episode six of Sir David Attenborough's Life on Earth. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.